Steve Callahan survived 76 days adrift at sea. He's the author of Adrift and Capsized and has consulted on numerous TV shows and films. This is Steve Callahan. I'm Duncan Gammy. You're listening to Dunk Tank. Well, uh, Steve, thanks for joining me a second time. Um, I really appreciate it. I appreciate you having me. I hope <laughs> things are going well for you over there. Yeah. On the other um, side of the pond. Yes. I, you know, the last time we talked, uh, I was in Bali and this was during the pandemic. And mm -hmm. I, I remember I, I was right next to the ocean and I had that conversation with you about you being adrift for 76 days at sea and just walking out, looking at the ocean. It was a very profound uh, conversation. And I urge everyone to go back and listen to that if they haven't to uh, already. Um, but one of the things we didn't talk about as much last time is uh, like you've lived a long life, obviously, apart from these 76 days. And right. I was kind of hoping to get a little insight into how um, perhaps you've integrated this uh, amazing survival experience uh, throughout decades of your life, because it has come up with you know, your work on movies and et cetera, your books. Um, <clears throat> anyway, I, I, I'm going on far too long. What I really wanted to to know is, um, first, first off, how old were you when you, uh, this, the days adrift happened? I, um, I was, I turned 30 in the life raft, a couple of days in the life raft. It wasn't exactly one of my best birthdays. Um, so, uh, I'm about, I'm 69 now. I'll be 70 next year. And the, I guess it'll be the 40th anniversary of, um, of actually being adrift. So yeah, it's, it, it's amazing to me how life is composed of moments really, or short periods, short periods of time that are important experiences in our life and, uh, and how they can live on because certainly I've lived adrift for a very long time in many, many, many different ways. Um, you know, really, I, I, in fact, this just came up this week, uh, because, um, we sold film rights to the book way long time ago. And that's a very convoluted story in its own right. And of course, most of these stories never actually get made into film, but there is a filmmaker in California who's actually producing a uh, documentary of a drift. Um, he's got all my, you know, he came here for a week with, with uh, uh, a sound and, and in um, lighting guy and they filmed a lot, you know, the memorabilia that I, that I had left. I read bits of the log, which I hadn't looked at in almost 40 years. Yeah. Um, and, and all of that. And uh, so it came up because, you know, they were like all, especially documentary filmmakers, you know, kind of hand to mouth. They're usually labors of love. I've been involved with a few. Usually they take years and years and years of incredible dedication and work uh, to accomplish. And of course, they're always looking for money, um, but it's it's coming together slowly, but surely. And I try the best I can to be supportive of this, but I, I had to point out to those guys, I've been living adrift now for almost 40 years and it comes up virtually every day. It is incredible to me. You know, I either I get emails from people or 
you know, something like, like you, you know, talking, talking to somebody for a podcast or requests for podcasts or other kind of interviews, um, uh, you know, going out and talking, but before COVID anyway, I, I would occasionally go out and do talks for, you know, nonprofits and stuff, especially in recent years, um, all of that. So it really was like writing adrift was like having a bit, almost like having a child. And once it gets published, it's like, well, you're shoving them out of the nest and they go off and have a life of their own. And it, it's had, it's had quite a life. I, I, I am surprised. I think the, the, I was so naive when I was 30 in writing this um, because I, I, I think I, th I had the idea that if I wrote a book about it, it would answer everybody's questions <laughs> wrong. <laughs> yeah. It just kind of stirs everything up again, but it's, it's been an incredibly sometimes tiring, but, uh, but also incredibly positive experience overall. It's taken me, really all over the world. Um, not that I wasn't zooming around the world with other parts of my professional career and whatnot, but, but it really has taken me all over the world and introduced me to incredible people. I've gotten to meet, you know, people like Thor Heyerdahl, uh, author of Contiki, a great adventurer of my youth, especially a uh, very inspiring character. Um, all kinds of other survivors and, and, and whatnot. And as you mentioned, also even working on a couple of, of feature films. So that uh, it's been very interesting how the serendipity of my life is, has, has uh, steered me. Well, it's interesting when you say it comes up every day and it, it, it almost not to compare these, these two experiences, um, you know, totally, but someone like Paul McCartney is always going to be a Beatle for the rest of his life. It's like, okay, it's right. decades ago, but he's, it's brought up every day. And for you, I mean, how do you feel about that? Is that something that, does it feel like a burden? Uh, I have to be, to be completely honest. I have, I have very mixed feelings about it. Um, uh, for one thing, it's made me very empathetic for people who are actually famous, you know, yeah. you know, the old joke, I'm, I'm famous, it's just nobody knows it yet. And, uh, you know, for somebody like Paul McCartney, especially, um, I, I, for the little bit of fame that I've had, um, it can be overwhelming uh, at times. And so I have great empathy for that mixed blessing of, of fame, of real fame, like somebody like Paul McCartney, because it's incredible pressure. And the disappearance of a certain amount of uh, privacy and, and things like that, um, it, it's, you know, even for me has kind of spun out of control at times. Um, uh, way back when in the 80s, um, after I'd come back from this experience, um, I got quite burned out front and the really the first year back. I mean, here I was, you know, kind of a single handed sailor. I was pretty introverted generally. Um, and I came back to all uh, a lot of hoopla and, and I wanted to talk about it. I, I, it was an important experience to me and what I thought was a valuable experience. And I wanted to share that with people. Um, I, I've always felt that the experience itself was, is, is way bigger than me. I was, I think I may have told you this in our last discussion, you know, for me, I was like the, 
the clumsy, very flawed human observer of this, this incredible world that I somehow was a, was a tiny cog in, in that machine and was blessed to be able to witness it. And so I felt there was I've always felt a responsibility to um, the story, if you will, um, and, and all of that. But after I got back, um, I was, you know, getting calls from people all over the world, newspapers and whatnot. And there was a lot of pressure that came from that. Um, and not just pressure, but really weird things that would happen. Um, like what? Oh, there was a kind of very uncomfortable period with the Coast Guard, the people that interview me and then they're calling back and they're going, well, this guy in the Coast Guard's telling telling me that this is all a fraud and blah, 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 which has happened to a number of survivors I've known, actually. It's one thing that's made me very uh, sympathetic to their their situation and got actually helped inspire me to write a, a book called Capsize about four guys who were on a boat that turned upside down and spent four months in this half flooded wow. boat off in of New Zealand in during the, the winter in the Southern hemisphere. Um, and when they got back, everybody said, oh, this has got to be a fraud and whatnot. And I've, I've found that that's happened with a number of people, especially ocean survivors, um, because they're out of sight, out of mind. It's not like, you know, I don't know, somebody who's, you know, dug out of an avalanche and, uh, you know, on land where people know when it happened, how it happened and, and all of that. And it was a screw up of communication. And this, frankly, it was uh, a, a Coast Guard officer who, as, as I said, was, you know, when, when, when survivors have the bad taste to show up alive after everybody's written them off, yeah. Um, it can be embarrassing for certain uh, individuals, especially people involved with search and rescue and things like that. And that was that's it's kind of a hammer, frankly, for to uh, to the head of, of survivors, because not only do we have to go through the experience, but then we come back to people who are, you know, trying to kind of badmouth you. There are things like that. There was a situation and well, back in the heyday of magazines, if anybody remembers what a magazine is, yes. um, one of the world's biggest magazines was Reader's Digest, and they did a big feature on me. Actually, I don't know if you can see it, but I might be able to show you up on the very top. Oh, yeah. For people who are just here this. is an yeah. illustration out of out of Reader's Digest. Um, for, yeah, and for people, when, sorry, sorry to interrupt. Just for people who are only listening to this, um, the view uh, from Steve's uh, perspective is his study, and it's a lot of paintings and portraiture on the wall. It's very nice looking. Sorry, go, yeah, go this, ahead. This is my shipwreck corner. Yeah, I, I have many corners of my office, but this is the theme back here. It's a little bit. Uh, most of my memorabilia is a, a couple of of um, of museums now, but but I have a couple. You know, a few pictures. You can see the spear gun back there I carried, right oh, well. there. Um, and and those are going away soon too. But but it's it's a good. I have a block from a a, a, a wreck off of Bermuda that we dove on, which is a good reminder. Do you, do what you, can happen out there? That kind of thing. I'm I'm curious. Um, do you ever look at this experience that? in a lot of other people's eyes, at least, has come to define you. Do you want them to, uh, if you're going to be known or famous for anything, do you want to be famous for this? 
Well, that's a very good question. I'm not sure if anybody's ever asked me that, which is unusual. <laughs> um, um, I don't really know. And I, I you know, I'm, like I said, I, I feel like my life is, is, has been controlled by uh, serendipity. I kind of, my philosophy of life is don't fight upstream so much, float downstream and avoid as many rocks as possible because there's, it's still quite the ride. Um, and, and I, and that served me well because it's taken me all these different directions. And, and you know, I, I feel very fulfilled from my life. What other people think about it really is not as important to me. I guess it is to everybody to a certain, certain degree. Yeah. Uh, I don't want to be remembered as a complete idiot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, I don't know. I've done a lot of things in my life. And, and in fact, one of the things I'm kind of most proud of is I feel like I've been a catalyst in my life. Um, I've worked with a lot of people um, to help create things that are much bigger than myself. Um, even though I've worked a lot alone, I've sailed a lot alone and so on. I've brought those experiences into things like working on Life of Pi, for example, which brought a lot of the story of Adrift to new, completely new audiences and in a, in a completely different format. And, uh, you know, I, that to create something like any film really uh, demands the talents of a huge number of people and in, in, in all, almost everybody I worked with on, on Life of Pi were incredibly talented, dedicated people who brought their A-game. Uh, and if any one of them had fallen down on the job, it, that it wouldn't have worked. Um, so I'm very proud of those kinds of contributions, even though, you know, 20 years from now, nobody may know that I had any part in that at all. Uh, that doesn't really matter. It's, it's what comes out the other end instead. And I spent a lot of my life um, as, a, as a maritime journalist, primarily maritime, uh, in, interviewing people and, you know, um, writing articles about people people whose work I really respected and who I thought really add something to the world. And so I'm, I, I'm kind of proud of that. And I, I know a lot of things that I've done have led to connections with people that have gone off and done something else too. And that's how our lives are. You know, we're not even aware of everybody we touch in our life. So um, I guess I don't need to be remembered for anything, but in my head, that, uh, that body of work that I've created, whether it's, you know, drawing or contributing to a, um, a survival manual or lecturing or something, if that, if that has any kind of positive outcome in, in the long run, whether I know it or not, even myself, it, it, I feel, I feel at ease with, 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 what I've done overall in whether or not a drift had ever happened to me, I think I would have been okay. <laughs> if that answers yeah. your question. At all. No, absolutely. And, and I, I was just curious because that's, that is a, um, it, it's definitely an unusual thing to be known for, you know? Um, yeah. And it, it, because most people have not gone through this kind of experience, but I think part of the reason why they're so fascinated by it is because it is such a, a survival story and, and it feels like it, it taps into something um, just very basic in human nature that we don't really encounter 
in this much more comfortable, safe world, at least yeah. in the West. Yeah, I, I, I think that, you know, this guy I was talking about who was working on this documentary film said the other day something about, you know, my contribution to the film and, you know, they, they want the secret sauce. What's the secret sauce of the drift? Yes. And I, I, I think the real secret sauce is there, if there is one, um, is that I came back from a, uh, a situation that in specific ways is, is pretty unique. Uh, it's a pretty small club of long-term ocean survivors out there, and I've met a few of them. Uh, most of them are gone now, unfortunately. Um, people like uh, Maurice and Marilyn Bailey, who I think were incredible people, and Dougal Robertson. Uh, I don't know what's happened to his family, but Dougal, I know, is gone. Um, people like that. And... Um, you know, really, it's very rare, uh, especially these days with the kind of communications we have and, and, and stuff. Um, you know, I, I was operating in the relative stone age. But uh, so it, it's a unique situation. So there's that, you know, call of adventure, if you will, uh, especially to a lot of younger people. Uh, a lot of schools were using it in uh, adrift as a, uh, you know, uh, uh, to accompany various kinds of lessons in, in grade school. People, kids as young as 10 years old were reading it. Some of them, you know, making really um, uh, intelligent observations about my situation, um, things like that. But at the same time, it's totally universal. We all survive every day. Uh, we all struggle with it, um, or at least the vast majority of us, whether it's struggling to get through school or struggling with living in a domestic abuse situation or, um, uh, you know, the survival writ large covers a pretty wide territory. Um, so I've, once I... Even, even before a drift was published, but especially after a drift was published, you know, I, I, I get constant communication. I've gotten constant communication from people who've never even seen the ocean, you know, have no experience with boats or sailing or any of those things, but have written to me about their own struggles, um, which I find quite touching. I, I've had, you know, complete strangers share with me very intimate elements of their life. And, uh, you know, it's very... Um, it's incredibly touching that people would feel open enough with me to be able to do that because somehow I spoke to them through, through a drift in, in ways that they could, they could relate to, even though it was very unique. Well, one of the things that I thought was interesting about you um, was that you seemed, if you could, you, you seem like almost the perfect guy to go through this kind of experience when you're talking about <laughs> doing yoga and stuff like that. And, 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 you know, we talked a little bit about like Zen and stuff like that last time um, and your, your closeness to the natural world. Um, I'm curious from, at least from the, the vantage point of someone in my generation, um, that kind of disposition or those interests, uh, specifically things like yoga, it seems like it would be less common from people from your generation. Is that, true or what what was your sort of social background to get into that stuff well actually my generation you got to remember we were all old hippies basically um not necessarily um 
hippies in a strict sense of the world in that I, I didn't leave it, live in at Hay Ashbury in, in San Francisco, uh, you know, the real home of hippies. But I was of the 60s generation. We were, um, but I was unusual even then. I, I mean, I was kind of, I was anti-establishment, but anti-anti-establishment. I, I was a philosophy major. I love ideas. Um, uh, even, even dumb ideas uh, it can be fun. Um, but scary also if they get absorbed by too many people, many of which is, which is the case today about many dumb ideas, but, um, you know, no matter what I've done, my, my life has been very bifurcated in terms of, um, kind of living in my head. Like I said, I was very introverted, especially as a, as a, as a kid, um, and felt comfortable being alone, felt comfortable being in wilderness environments, things like that, and doing physical things. Even today, even though I've had a lot of health issues and whatnot, I feel, you know, I guess light on on Marblehead eventually. And I, you know, I've realized that I really like just like being outside and being, you know, looking at the stars and the woods and, you know, all that kind of stuff and doing physical things. Um, but at the same time, I like the heady stuff. Um, I, I like the ideas. I like science. I even, even my, what I did for work, um, I started building boats and then I got into design and teaching design, which got me more into writing and communications and things like that. And uh, through all the years, I, I had a mix. I would go off doing a voyage, uh, but then I would also write articles about it. Uh, so I guess um, my life has been unusual in that way. I've, I've, I've had a couple of real jobs in my life, so to speak, but mostly I work for myself and direction myself. Um, but doing things like yoga, for example, was completely common in my generation. My, my generation, and actually starting really with the beatnik generation, uh, was opening up uh, America uh, to new ideas and to new ways of thinking. Um, I actually knew a guy who stayed in, uh, in Japan after the war and studied Zen Buddhism and, you know, colleagues of his or people like um, Alan Watts you know, we're bringing these ideas to America back when I was um, young. I mean, I was first, I was living aboard my, the, the first boat, boat I lived aboard, you know, I was reading Alan Watts. And, uh, you know, when I was in college, I was reading all kinds of philosophy, uh, Eastern philosophy, Hinduism, Buddhism, uh, studying history of, of religion, um, as well as is is other you know metaphysics um, you know Kant and and and, and all these people um, so I'm I'm not sure I it's hard for me to pin myself <laughs> and and whether or, or or anything in any kind of logical way but but I but I guess to to really get to your point. I've always thought that I was kind of like, if somebody's going to get stuck out here, I'm pretty, I'm, I'm pretty much the guy you want to have um, because I had direct experience with using my hands of patching boats together in various ways, you know, cause once you're offshore um, the, you can't just park the boat in the side of the road and, you know, 
wait for the cop to show up. It's, yeah. You know, you got to rely on yourself. And and I had done a number of, you know, uh, pretty radical, uh, sailed a fair number of pretty radical boats for their era. Uh, and, and usually if you're doing those sorts of things, you have failures and, and whatnot. And plus you're pushing them a lot of times, especially if you're doing any kind of racing. Um, so, you, you know, I was used to that hands-on, I'm in, a, I'm in an isolated environment with limited resources, whether it was at sea or like hiking in the mountains or whatever it was. And how do I solve this problem with what I've got? And, and so in a practical way, I was pretty well experienced for, for a person of that age. Plus, I was physically in the best shape of my life, um, which was important. Um, and then I was also able in a kind of psychological way, and this is, this, this I think was kind of essential, at least to myself. And I, I think to other survivors is that you, I don't know, it's, it's not really an out of body experience exactly, but, um, you almost have to be able to separate yourself from that part of you that is suffering, fearful, all those elements. And for me, the basis of that is story that in our lives, whether we're, you know, doing what you do, um, or, or working for a big company or whatever, that we have to see a story of our life that has meaning. Um, I don't know if I mentioned before, but one of my favorite books is Victor Frankl's The Man's Search for Meaning. Yes. Um, yes. He was a, uh, concentration camp survivor, uh, incredible person and talk about positive outlook in the world. Oh my God, what he faced, what he witnessed, um, what he experienced somehow he put into a context that was really meaningful, uh, to himself and has been meaningful to thousands of people, uh, ever since, uh, has written some great books and, so for me, it was like, you know, I, I often talk about or ask about, you know, whether what's the important equipment that you had? Well, I wouldn't be alive if it wasn't for the life raft itself, you know, which survived an incredible voyage. Um, I wouldn't be alive if, if it wasn't for the spear gun, um, which provided me with virtually all of my food. I wouldn't be alive if it wasn't for the solar stills as dysfunctional as they kind of were, um, but providing me with almost all of my water. Uh, I mean, every little element had to line up, of course. So basically everything is essential, no matter how inconsequential. But if I had to grade things, the other, the other most important element, um, piece of gear that I had were, were the pencils and little pads of paper that I carried that allowed me to keep notes and, you know, create a log that allowed me to at least maintain a, a sort of illusion that I was not that when I lost my boat, it wasn't the end of the voyage, but was a, was a continuation and a much more humble craft. I still, you know, was able to mm -hmm. keep a log, do a, do normal shipboard routine, navigate, keep navigational notes, all those practical things, but also to kind of separate myself from it in a psychological way so that I could sit there and, you know, yeah, I'm in pain, I'm suffering, this is horrible, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, this is what happened with the fish today. And wasn't that just like awesome? Or, and it all boiled down to in, in terms of um, the story, like um, Kathy, my, my, my wife always says, well, I think the core of your story comes down to a line that you wrote in your log. It's a view of heaven from a seat in hell. Mm 
Mm. Um, that no matter how bad it was, no matter how desperate it was, I could still kind of do that psychological splitting and see that, um, you know, that this was an incredible experience and I was awakened to strengths I never knew I had, weaknesses that were highly outlined and which has been very useful in the rest of my life and to know both strengths and weaknesses. Um, and to develop this incredible relationship with nature, to feel more connected to everything in the universe in a very visceral way than, than I had ever felt in my life. So these are things that a lot of survivors see in their experiences. I, you know, I've uh, a couple of examples of that. Uh, uh, again, uh, Maurice and Marilyn Bailey, Maurice wrote in, uh, in their book, um, which has been published in a, a couple of titles, but 119 days adrift and 117 days adrift. The, the, the last, because it was misreported early on and they didn't want to confuse people when they came out with the book. Anyway, at the end of that, you know, finally somebody sees them and comes to pick them up and, and he's got this brilliant passage about, um, you know, there's this almost reticence to be saved from the situation because they've they've completely adapted to it and and they're sort of kings of their domain and 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 uh the same thing happened i did a tv show with the um with some of the the crew of um of an aircraft that crashed into the andes that led to the uh to the book alive and in a movie also by that and uh, nando parada who was basically credited with um sort of leading the group, becoming a, a de facto leader of the group and hiking out over the, over the, uh, the mountains and in, uh, to safety and bringing, 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 uh, rescuers to them. Uh, he and I were in the corner of the green room, just chatting, you know, which is one of the real treats of having experienced something like this. You get to meet these amazing people. And, uh, he says to me, sometimes I wish, I w just wish I was back in the mountains again. And these are people that had to cannibalize the bodies of other passengers, just the most horrendous kind of experience you can imagine. And yet there was a, a value, a, a deep spiritual and emotional value to the experience. So I think all of survivors share that. And, you know, keeping a log for me was very important because it allowed me to, I don't know, put on my kind of writer's hat and say, okay, fine, you're over here, but I'm here right now. Like, like, like I'm interviewing myself, you know, in yeah. about the experience. So that, that was really, really important. And the arts I find are incredibly important to, uh, to other survivors, especially in the post-trauma period where we need to make a story for ourselves that means something. Um, you know, we can, in business, we call it self-actualization where, our work isn't just pushing a bolt, but is a contribute a, a contribution to a to a greater whole uh, that we think is valuable. Yeah, that it, when you say putting on the the captain's hat, you know, I was thinking of someone who's like checking the thermostat in the middle of a fire. Like it 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 does kind of it, it's for your own sanity. I imagine that was helpful. But how did you know to do that? Was that a skill you had picked up or is that your disposition? Uh, yeah, just disp disposition is, is learned to a certain degree. Um, 
you know, we know from, uh, you know, survival training, for example, that you can imp vastly improve people's chances of survival. Um, early in the survival stage, and, and anybody who reads Drift knows that, that um, I kind of divide myself up in, in conceptually into a, a physical and an emotional and a rational part. You know, they were like these three people almost in the raft, arguing with each other often because they have very different needs and desires and fears and yeah. all, all of that. Uh, you know, the physical part of me is wanting to eat every fish I possibly can. And the ration, the emotional part of me has gotten very attached to the fish. And I look at them as very highly spiritual creatures and sort of, I don't know, they're really the stars of the show. And and, uh, and I didn't want to really catch any of them and that rational part would come in and say, well, you know, you fish, but you want to fish in certain times because it's more efficient to fish at certain times. And you can't just like fish all the time because every time you, you catch a fish, it endangers your equipment. Uh, at one point put a hole in the bottom of the raft, almost killed me and, you know, uh, kept breaking the spear and I don't know how long I'm going to be out here. So you have duration, your equipment and your time and your energy and all these other things. So, you know, all these different sort of characters within myself uh, come into play. And it's kind of like that all the time. In fact, there was a single-handed sailor, there was a, a single-handed round the world race that started about when I got back, actually, I think it was in 82 that year. And uh, these early competitors, one of these early competitors was talking about, he says, you know, you, you go offshore as, as a single-handed sailor and, you know, you're laying in your bunk and all hell's breaking loose up, deck, up on deck and you're going, oh, my God, I got to get up there and, you know, deal with this issue. And there's another part of me that just said, oh, forget about it. I really want to sleep. But then there's the captain who slaps you and, you you know, you are, and you kind of like you you divide almost into different people as soon as you start the cross the starting line. And he was talking about as soon as you go across the finish line, those people kind of all come back together again. So, you know, that's part of an experience, I think, that's that's quite um, common for people who spend time alone in in these kind of environments. But it's also common, uh, especially in the early stages of a survival experience like um, and I write about that in a drift, for example, when the, the boat gets hit and it's filling up with water and it's going down and there's a part of me freaking out and going, oh, God, you're going to die. You're going to die. And there's another part of me telling you shut the hell up, you know, just wants to get rid of that guy. Yeah. And part of me that's, that's acting in accordance with my practice and my training about, you know, what you need to do in order to actually bail out and get your equipment out and flake the raft, blah, blah, blah. And there was even a part of me that was kind of amused because there was a camera on the, on, uh, you know, a, a video, well, not video, a super eight camera uh, mounted on the aft deck. And uh, somehow the elect electrical system had, fused together or something and turned the camera on, which was taking this incredible footage, you know, and there was part of me that was even like taking a little amusement at that. So there are all these things going on in your head at once, especially during a crisis period. Um, and, and it's a basic theme of mine, both in life, uh, especially after post-adrift, which become a real theme of, uh, of mine. Um, and certainly within the, within the, the experience itself and through the book, is that we are not single-dimensional people. We're multi-dimensional. When 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 uh, when you're breaking up with a woman, maybe let's say, take an example. You know, there might be part of you that's like, like really sad about it and 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 horrified, and there might be part of you that's actually a little bit relieved 
Um, and even, I, it's difficult to talk to people about this during, uh, you know, a critical time, but like, for example, I've, I've known, you know, I, we've, I'm old enough now, you know, a lot of my peers are gone. Um, and my wife dealt with a lot of people in sort of end of life experiences and whatnot. And as much as you may be sad to see somebody go, you might also be relieved both for them and for everybody around them. You know, some people suffer for decades. And uh, uh, so there's that mixed feeling there. And, and I think we're all like that, but both about what we think and what we feel. We, we tend to try to, I don't know, be single dimensional all the time, but I'm, I'm not sure why. I think it's, it's less confusing perhaps, but I try to embrace all of those parts of myself. Um, and I find it gives me a better sense of actual reality, not, not a reality I, I need to conjure in order to, you know, keep alive some belief that I need to believe or want to believe. And, and, uh, and in fact, in the survival experience, of course, I, I this is another theme of mine, uh, is that denial is the number one enemy of survivor. Uh, you know, if, if, if you can't come to grips with reality, no matter how uncomfortable it is or how it doesn't fit with what you want to believe, um, you know, you kind of toast if, if, if you can't do that. Instead, you, you, you know, the quicker you can get to grips with the exact nature of a problem, the, the quicker you can start to address how to fix that problem or how to compensate for it. Um, and if you don't ever do that, then you can't ever even begin to find a solution or, or move forward. So, um, I don't know if that, that answers yeah, your yeah, question. Yeah. I, I can kind of ramble a bit. No, no, no. I mean, it's, connected. It, it's a very, this idea that there are these like separate parts of you that, that break apart during this time when you're in survival mode and that come back together at the end of it. Uh, it, it sounds, um, I, I don't know. You said you were a, a you know. A can, you, can you hang on a minute? Yeah, I'm yeah. Gonna, this phone's going to ring. So I'm going to just take a little break here for a second okay, okay? no worries oh, it's never mind <laughs> <You're good. laughs> yeah i'm so i'm sorry i can't shut that ringer off so if it don't rings worry. it rings. okay all right so can you i don't know start the yeah yeah, yeah. carry on yeah. <laughs> um so i was just i was just curious you said you were a child of the 60s and that sounds like a very psychedelic Kind of experience. Were, were you involved in that world at all? Oh, I, I, I'm not sure how that world is. I mean, it was the world. <laughs> I, see. Uh, I was born. I was born in 1952, and you know, sort of the beginning of the space age. Um, and you know, the McCarthy era. I don't know for you know a lot of your audience might not be familiar with that, but you know the the country was freaking out about communists and communists were everywhere, and it's not unlike what's maybe happening now actually. Um, uh, but the Cold War. Uh, you know, I was in fifth grade when the Cuban Missile Crisis happened, uh, so you know I grew up with duck and I literally grew up with duck and cover exercises, you know, where they, they say they, they, first of all, they take us into, and this was going back to, you know, first grade or second grade, you know, they show you this movie of, Oh, here's the, here's the modern world, you know, atomic bomb goes off, blows away, you know, whole forests and buildings, you know, you're familiar with the, the, the footage. Uh, 
Yeah. And and then they tell you, well, if there's an atomic attack, get under your desk and, you know, put your put your hands over your head. And I was like, you know, I'm a kid, but, uh, you know, that doesn't seem to make much sense. Like, what's that going to be about? So, you know, we grew up in the era we grew up in. And then, of course, in by the time I'm in high school, um, early in high school, that was the summer of love in San Francisco. And in fact, I drove through San Francisco during, in, I think it was 1967. And, uh, and, you know, people are like, ooh, there's a hippie, there's a hippie. But it, it, it just shaped our whole atmosphere, way of thinking. You know, we, it, it was an incredible era because, you know, we were um, cog becoming cognizant more of um, issues revolving around civil rights, women's rights, uh, all these things, which I think were, were and remain very worthy quests. Um, and it's, it was, you know, not only what was on the news, but what your peers talk about and what you personally try to incorporate into your own life. So that's when I say I'm a child of the 60s. It was really my formative years. I, I was really a teenager into my young adulthood. And of course, the 60s really stretched into the 70s and really kind of took a fundamental turn in the 80s, especially, you know, Ronald Reagan was was elected in 1980. And that was, I think that was symbolic of a sea change in attitudes and less about how can we as individuals improve our culture into the sort of very individualistic viewpoint, uh, which persists to this day of, you know, what's good for me has got to be what's good for everybody else. And it's all about my rights and forget about responsibilities and, and things like that. So, uh, that's, I guess that's what I mean in a general sense, but I, see. I don't know. It's complicated. <laughs> fair, fair enough. Um, I, I was curious, one of the things I didn't ask last time, but um, just the fact that when you immediately ended your time adrift, you were married at the time, correct? That's right. What was, maybe I'm forgetting, but at the last conversation, it, it wasn't as though like you, you got back onto shore and the first call was your wife or something like that. Well, and feel free to stop me at any time, but what, what was, um, were, were you were adrift at sea for 76 days and was your wife concerned? She was concerned, but to be honest, she was, she was kind of caught in a very awkward situation. Um, uh, Frisha, and and I got married. We were quite young, um, and she had I don't know she, her upbringing. She she was basically brought up by her grandparents because she was orphaned at a at a at a relatively young age, and um, that is a difficult thing for anybody. And so I think she felt quite lost for many years. Uh, you know, she'd gone to a couple of schools and dropped out. She was really smart, really talented, but, you know, she was kind of following me around, you know, I was messing about in boats and she loved boats. In fact, you know, she worked at a, you know, at a, at a, a very famous sail loft for a while and whatnot. And, and we both lived on a boat and we really enjoyed the sailing but then I think she kind of slowly but surely discovered herself and realized that what she wanted to do, you know, we, so we came to Maine and bought a place and she started organic farming and things and really developing her own life more. And, uh, and that led to us basically kind of 
growing apart. Um, we were um, intellectually very compatible uh, in, in many ways, um, but also provocative to one another. <laughs> and uh, in the end, the, ba the basics of it was that uh, she went off, she went back to school and we were living apart and she was really going in her own direction. And we had kind of decided, well, that's it. And we'll split everything up. And we weren't technically divorced, but we had actually been living apart for about two years before I left in Napoleon Solo. So when I was actually adrift, yeah, she was concerned, but, you know, a lot of people were expecting her to be sort of the mourning widow, if you will, and, and she wasn't there in her life. So it was very awkward for her, and I feel badly about, like, putting her in, in, in that position. But when I came back, you know, even once I left a Napoleon solo, I mean, it was like, well, the marriage is, you know, technically we're married, but it, it's been over. And, and so I felt like, that was part of the, the feeling of freedom for myself, actually. We've been married for, I guess, at that point, five or six years or something. And, uh, um, you know, I, I felt, you know, free, as I'm sure she did, and uh, which was a wonderful thing in, in many ways. But and I was glad I, in a way that I didn't have that attachment ashore, um, that there would be somebody who was like, you know, really grieving and, and, and those sorts of things. Okay. Yeah. That makes more sense. So in, in other words, what was there when you got back, what, was there any like reunion with her at all? And, and I don't mean romantically reunion. I just, did you encounter her after that? Yes. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah. 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 She was still around and, you know, we had some nice discussions and nice walks, but you know, and I hear from her every great while. It's not like it was um, acrimonious kind of, situation uh, us splitting apart i still think that she was an incredible woman and uh incredibly smart and talented and she remains that way what was when you got back one of the hardest parts of of being done with this or of this journey i would imagine would be sort of like reintegrating into society because you're in this survival <laughs> mode and then you're back in you know and you're laughing. So why why is that why is that common? Uh, I'm I'm laughing because um, after a drift came out, and, and nobody had asked me specifically that question until after a drift came out, and I was doing a radio show with uh, basically ten year old kids in in uh, New York, and this very precocious young man got on board and asked me specifically that. How long did it take you to reintegrate into society? And I was like. <laughs> Whoa, <laughs> uh, um, I'm not sure if there is a, a definitive answer to that. It's a process that continues. Um, I don't think we go through any experiences in life and certainly not important uh, uh, fundamental experiences to our lives like that um, without them continuing forever basically. You know, we reintegrate them into our lives every day in different ways. And uh, society overall, uh, I, I don't know. I don't know if I was ever integrated into society. <laughs> so that's one answer. Um, but generally, you know, I came back um, 
made my way back to Maine. Uh, the guy I was working with who ran a, a boat design school uh, very kindly offered me a job. Um, and so I did that uh, while taking time off on occasion to, uh, to write adrift. But it was a really difficult time um, in, in very practical ways. I mean, I was broke. I had nothing. Um, I had nothing of value anyway. I had a old Datsun pickup truck uh, with 150,000 miles or something on it that was so rusted out that I kept a piece of plywood in the floor so that when I drove over puddles, I wouldn't get completely soaked. <laughs> um, you know, and... And so we were living, I, I had already been friends with, uh, with Kathy, who is my wife now. And uh, she also had gone through her own kind of situation, which I, I won't go into, but uh, um, she found herself kind of alone and desperate. And we started living together uh, in a house which has, you know, Frisch and I bought initially. And, but she had gone off to this other life and, and she was willing to rent it to us for $125 a month, uh, basically because it was unrentable. You know, a lot of it was unfinished. There were still holes through the walls. And, um, you know, um, I think that she put indoor plumbing in the house when either when we first were renting it or shortly thereafter. But basically it was pretty about as rudimentary as a, a house as you could have. Mm -hmm. And we couldn't aff even afford the rent without living together. And um, so there I was, you know, trying to put, trying to survive ashore again. And a lot of people would have expectations. This gets back to, I guess, another question that you had about, you know, what was, I don't know, dealing with things afterwards. And, you know, people calling and, you know, the press would call and, and to be honest, even though I've been on both sides of this, this fence, um, as an interviewer and interviewee, um, the press can be a bit like um, sharks in a feeding frenzy. You know, they're all there and, oh yeah, yeah, you're really important. I'm gonna talk to you and blah, 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 blah. And, you know, they take you back into this, what is actually a pretty traumatic experience and you're going through all these feelings again and whatnot. And they go, yeah, yeah, thank you and hang up and that's that's it, you know? And, and you're left kind of in a emotional, um, a, a washing machine and it's it can be really difficult uh, after a while uh, because everybody else is off and you know they're living in California with their pools and you know all of that and you're there struggling just to just to make ends meet so it was a difficult period for and we lived way under the poverty line for I don't know four or five years before I got adrift published and um, I remember actually when um I found a great publisher and a great editor. Um, I don't know how that happened, but it just, it did. It was the right time at the right place. And something unheard of uh, happened. Uh, here we were struggling, you know, just, just to live and oh, okay, fine. The book's going to get published. And uh, Harry Foster, my editor, um, 
called me and he said, um, well, you know, we've sent out, you know, galleys and things like that. And we're getting a lot of really positive feedback. The publisher's really excited about this. And so we're deciding to, you know, kind of like um, increase the publication. And we're going to actually send you some extra money as an advance, <laughs> which allowed us to finally go out and buy a car that actually worked. Um, so, um, and it wasn't a lot. I mean, I think the original advance was going to be like you know, two or three thousand dollars or something, and they were going to give me a few extra thousand dollars. But in my world, we were living on like five thousand dollars a year. And I know this is ancient history, and five thousand dollars is a lot more than now, or a lot less now than it was then. But, but um, it was pretty close to the bone living in 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 a, in a it all, kind of a survival experience in its own right. So this reintegration into society takes a very very long time, um, and uh, if ever, but it's never complete. It's just you can't change the experience. You can't really you you can accept what's happened to you and kind of move on from that, but it's not something that ever completely goes away. I never forget the desperation of starving, of um, the appreciation for having, you know, a glass of water, stuff like that. You still, every glass of water you get still kicking it back. Like, here we go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, not exactly. I mean, we do fall back into bad habits or not bad habits, but just kind of, you know, the way you were, you know, I bitch and moan with the best of them and stuff like that. But yeah, I have a consciousness of the preciousness of it. it, it it's it's uh, in the preciousness of, you know, times when you're, you're just like existing without pain is, you know, anybody who's lived with a lot of pain at some point, I think they know what the, I'm talking about. You know, e even though you don't remember pain, thank God, um, you remember what it was like to live in a lot of pain or uh, to starve, uh, to be desperately alone, um, things like that. I know I, I won't forget. I mean, that's why I'm talking to you now. I mean, <laughs> if I was my old self, I'd be hiding in a corner someplace, probably. I don't know. Just because you realize the being with other people after having been so painfully alone. Yeah. And it's always a mixed thing. It's like the psychological splitting that we were talking about or how you have different emotions. You know, I mean, people are both wonderful and horrible as we all know. And uh, I, I think what happened to me during the drift was that um, I came to better grips with that, not perfect. And of course it's not constant. You know, some days I'm totally fed up with humankind, um, but on a general level, um, I learned to embrace my own humanity and to have more empathy. As Kathy says, I opened myself up to the world. Um, so I wasn't so self-protective and I, 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 and which I hope I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not anymore. Um, it doesn't matter who I am, or like I said, it doesn't matter what I am or who people think I am or what they think of me really. Um, I'm less def defensive in that way. I'm, I'm more open to people and realize the value of um, not only people in what they offer each other in the world, but um, just them for being them. Steve, we're almost at an hour here. And I think that is just a perfect place to wrap up because 
uh, I don't think we're going to top that. But um, listen, I, again, enjoyed talking to you. Um, I loved our last conversation as well. Uh, I definitely think, because we were talking about earlier, when you said we were talking about the fame of being known for things, um, clearly it's had ripple effects beyond just the sensational aspects of the story. Um, so I, I hope you're, you're happy about that because I, I think a lot of people have taken your story and sort of, um, it, it's a powerful narrative, you know? Well, thanks. I appreciate that. And, um, yeah, yeah. From the, I don't know, from the ridiculous to the sublime, perhaps, um, <laughs> I think, you know, there were some practical things, uh, you know, a couple of life raft companies, you know, got in touch with me afterwards and, you know, we made some small changes in rafts and, and things like that, that hopefully will be better for mariners who are trapped in that situation in the future. But what, what has been very gratifying to me is to hear from people like yourself that the, the, the story of it, the, I don't know, the ideas of it, um, have an impact um, that they're that are positive for people. It's it's made it it's made the, all the effort worthwhile. I'll tell you seriously. And uh, do you have anything like a website or anything like that you want to uh, leave for people to find you? Yeah, I I have a website. Unfortunately, I've had a lot of personal health issues in the last eight years. So it's it's way out of date right now. It hasn't been updated in probably four years or something, but there's stuff on there, a lot of connections, a lot of um, references, some articles, connections to the books, other people um, uh, through, the, through the site. So, so people can look it up at stephencallahan.net. Um, and uh, I think if you look uh, if people are interested in this documentary that's being produced, they can, they can look at, um, I think it's um, called 76 days.com or something like that. Okay. You look, you look it up and if, if it's not right, correct it. <laughs> Will do. Uh, Steve, thank you once again for your time. Thank you, Duncan. And, and best wishes to you and everybody over there. Appreciate it. Take care. Cheers. Thank you to Stephen Callahan, and thanks for listening to Dunk Tank. I'm Duncan Gammy. See you next time.